KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, January 26th. How the Navy is handling COVID long term. We'll have more on that next. But first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported more than 6,000 new COVID-19 cases and 18 additional deaths related to the virus on Tuesday. The number of hospitalizations decreased by nine, according to the County Health and Human Services Agency. The county's seven-day average positivity test rate is 26.6 percent. Meanwhile, COVID-19 relief money is now available for California homeowners. Senator Alex Padilla says residents can now apply for the California Mortgage Relief Program. It aims to help as many as 40,000 households. This program will bring $1 billion to Californians who have fallen behind on their mortgage payments because of financial hardship caused by the pandemic. Qualified homeowners need to prove that they've suffered a pandemic hardship and that they are at or below their county's medium income. For a single household in San Diego, that's $84,850. And for a family of four, that would be $121,000 or less. For more information, go to camortgagerelief.org. If you're traveling on public transit these days, you might see some new private security officers. The first officers with intercon security began on San Diego's Metropolitan Transit System on New Year's Day, providing security services on trolleys, buses, and MTS properties. The Transit System's Board of Directors approved a $66 million contract with intercon in July. The contract is for three years with an option to extend for two more years. From KPBS, you're listening to to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Navy is trying to manage this latest phase of the pandemic. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says it comes after two years of hard-learned lessons. In the opening months of the pandemic, the Navy was caught off guard. In April 2020, it was forced to sideline the USS Roosevelt in Guam to stop a quickly spreading COVID-19 outbreak that infected over a third of the sailors. The head of the Navy, Admiral Michael Gilday, scrambled to get the situation under control. Our goal is to get a clean ship. Right. We have uh, people ashore that are isolated that have tested positive. We have others that are that are quarantined or isolated. One sailor on the aircraft carrier died. The commander was relieved. 
and the situation became a case study in how not to handle COVID-19. The Roosevelt was made much worse largely by self-inflicted wounds by the Navy. Brad Manning is a retired Navy captain who is now a researcher at Rand Corporation. He says the Navy underestimated the risk of COVID-19 and was slow to react. They were befuddled because they were getting a lot of conflicted guidance. They were befuddled because the medical chain of command was telling people one thing. The operational chain of command was telling them something else. Fast forward to early January. The USS Lincoln was about to depart from San Diego. Sailors are required to wear a mask now. The whole crew is vaccinated. Many had boosters. With the carrier as a backdrop, the head of the strike group, Rear Admiral J.T. Anderson, assured reporters that the Navy now has its act together. We do have some positive cases within the strike group, but we're extremely confident that uh, we can safely and effectively execute our mission. But the Navy has eased up on some of the restrictions that were put in place after the Roosevelt outbreak. Gone are the two weeks of isolation prior to boarding a ship. And the Admiral announced that the crew of 3,000 included sailors who had active COVID cases. Frankly, we've learned a lot over the course of the last couple of years, and we feel like we're in a, in a, a good place because we're highly vaccinated. The Navy has a 98% vaccination rate, but thousands of sailors have applied for exemptions. So far, the Navy hasn't granted any religious exemptions, though a federal judge has blocked the Navy from taking action against 35 SEALs who are suing on religious grounds. Meanwhile, for the first time in at least a decade, the Marines did recently grant a handful without listing a reason. Vice Admiral Roy Kitchener is in charge of Naval Surface Forces in the Pacific. The way we deal with it now is it's more of an endemic, right, than a pandemic. You know, for me personally, uh, I think it's going to be with us over the next few years, maybe forever. I don't know. Kitchener says no one will deploy without being vaccinated. Ships are doing contact tracing on board. And mirroring the Center for Disease Control guidelines, six sailors are spending five days in isolation instead of 10. There is no magic to getting them out quicker. There's just more tools to manage it. And that's really the key thing we look at. Do you have enough people, you know, that can operate that ship safely? Manning says the Navy has made progress keeping sailors healthy. Still, he says a lot of effort went into keeping ships at sea. Maybe, he says, a better answer was keeping ships at home rather than sending them on non-essential missions. The Navy needs to think seriously about what's really definite must-do deployment and what's something that can wait, Uh, creating all kinds of havoc in order to try to meet a commitment may not be necessary. And he says the Navy still has trouble anticipating crises instead of learning from its failures. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. Baja California has announced an official investigation into the murders of two journalists in Tijuana in less than a week. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado has more. The governor of Baja California, Pilar de Avila, took to social media to condemn the murders of reporters Lourdes Maldonado and Margarito Martinez, saying she will use the full power of the state to guarantee that justice prevails. With that end, a special prosecutor will be assigned to investigate their murders. Maldonado and Martinez were both shot outside of their homes. The Committee to Protect Journalists reports since 2018, 32 reporters have been killed and 15 are missing. The situation is grave. It's 
part of the ongoing cycle of insecurity in Mexico. Dr. John Sullivan is an expert in security and organized crime in Mexico. He says these murders are concerning. This year in Mexico, there have been three murders of journalists or journalists and media workers together. Um, Last year, for the entire year, there was seven. So we have an incredibly bloody month. Sullivan says the appointment of a special prosecutor is a step in the right direction because 95 percent of those murders have gone unsolved. Every time the state looks to shine the light of truth on crime and corruption, it helps limit crime and corruption. Sullivan adds this appointment could trigger more violence. Will there be a violent flashback? That's certainly possible. Does it place her at risk? That's also possible. But to allow the current situation to to continue without any intervention would be perilous for the Mexican state. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Some business owners along Chula Vista's 3rd Avenue say they're seeing more drunken behavior and crime over the past couple of years. KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer says a newly formed group is looking for solutions. A new group of South Bay business owners and regional leaders met for the second time in three months on Monday. Their goal? Find solutions to what they say are growing safety problems along 3rd Avenue business corridor in Chula Vista. Chula Vista Brewing's Tim Parker says... There have been more instances of broken windows, vandalism, and public intoxication over recent years. He's had his storefront smashed multiple times. So you definitely need definitely a, a bigger police presence um, where I, I think we, they need to be there more, not just after we call, but there already, to make the people uncomfortable to be on that block. That, that shouldn't be on the block. Parker says some local businesses need to do a better job patrolling what's happening in and around their establishments. He also said some of the issues in the area stem from the growing homeless population, especially at nighttime. Uh, I've been noticing myself a lot of more uh, drug dealers has come to the block. But if you saturate the neighborhood with a bunch of homeless, of course, you know, they, a lot of times they're there because of the drug. So a savvy drug dealer will probably go to where they're at to sell the drugs. Vogue Tavern owner Gonzalo Quintero says he sees the homeless population as less of a problem, but agrees that more security will help the busy corridor. In fact, he's on a committee with the 3rd Avenue Village Association that will be focusing on new safety programs beginning this spring. We're looking in the future at providing closed-circuit television to patrol, to have you know, an eye in the sky to help people patrol. We're looking at uh, having, on the weekends and in the evenings, having uh, private security. Quintero says part of the plan could even include a new police substation nearby. The Chula Vista Police Department encourages members of the public to call and report crimes as they say it will help them address the problem and assign more resources to the area. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Coming up on the podcast, historically, doctors have been opposed to creating a single-payer health care system in the U.S. There's this fear that if there is a universal public insurance plan, that doctors are going to get paid less. Legislation to create single-payer health care in California soon faces a major hurdle. More on that next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Legislation that would help create a single-payer government-run health plan in California will face a key hurdle in the next week. The bill must pass the full assembly floor by January 31st or it's dead. The effort is being led by the state's nurses union, but on the other side, the state's largest association of doctors is opposed. In all previous attempts to create a single-payer system in the U.S., the fiercest objections have always come from doctors. Dr. Micah Johnson, the co-author of the book Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide, spoke with the California Report's April Demboski about the history of the single-payer effort. In your book, you call doctors the perennial opponents of health reform. What events led you to draw that conclusion? So really, doctors have had a century-long history in the health reform debate, usually as the opponents. And that started back in the 1910s during the progressive era of reforms. This is after Germany in 1883 had passed health insurance. In 1911, Great Britain had passed health insurance. It seemed clear that the U.S. would be following suit. And initially, it looked like doctors in the American Medical Association were going to be supporters of the bill. But as the discussions unfolded, doctors turned. What were their concerns? The top one is really their own pay. And the second one being their autonomy in the practice of medicine. So, you know, going back to the 1910s and also in the 1940s, there's this fear that if there is a universal public insurance plan, that doctors are going to get paid less. So I think the most striking example is Harry Truman's healthcare proposal in the 1940s. This is the first and really only time a sitting U.S. president gave a full-throated endorsement of a single-payer style, truly universal national health insurance plan. And it was the American Medical Association were the top opponents of the plan. They hired a PR firm called Campaigns Inc. that rose to fame in California, helping to defeat a statewide universal health insurance plan in the state. The American Medical Association put an incredible amount of money behind this. So $3.5 million. In today's dollars, that's about $40 million. It was the largest lobbying campaign the nation had ever seen. And it worked. So at the beginning... The public was in support of this national health insurance plan, but then support dwindled over the years. And the vast majority of people had heard of the AMA's opposal uh, to, to the plan. When I talk to doctors or groups who are opposed to the single-payer proposals right now, they say their top concerns are their patients. I think doctors have been double agents in the health reform debate for the last century. And you know we wear two hats in these conversations. We wear the hat of medical experts, people who know a lot about what's best for patients. Then we also wear a hat that's just our own personal financial interest. And I think these things can often get confused and, you know, can be leveraged against each other. 
How has doctors' thinking evolved from the earliest 20th century to the Medicare days to now? I think we're really seeing an evolution. And first, seeing doctors support the Affordable Care Act in 2008, 2009. And then over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of very interesting developments. One, now in most polls, a majority of doctors do support single-payer healthcare. And then secondly, we've seen that the American Medical Association, there's some internal debate about what the stance is going to be. And at one of the, in recent years, the big meetings for the American Medical Association, it was actually the medical student chapter brought up a resolution to try to remove the AMA's opposition to single-payer healthcare. And it very narrowly failed. It got 47% support. So the AMA still opposes a single-payer, but we can see signs that things are changing. And then you have the second biggest group of doctors in the country, the American College of Physicians. This is where most of the generalist physicians are. And they now support single-payer healthcare as an option for moving forward on health reform. That was Dr. Micah Johnson speaking with The California Report's April Domboski. That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.